Can everybody hear me okay? Um, great to be able to share with you this evening. And uh, again, as we're looking through the book of Psalms, we're looking at Psalm 126. I'll just take time to read that to you. If you have your verses before you, then great. And you can follow down through as we look at what God has to say to us through these words. So Psalm 126, when the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, O God, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seeds to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. The end part of that psalm is probably more familiar than the beginning, and we sometimes relate that to a harvest time or a harvest service, but it's actually so much more than that when you look into the background of the Psalms. I hope you're enjoying going through the Psalms. Um, I find it more than just poetry, although it is widely known part of the poetic section of the Bible. The Psalms to me are so much more than that. Individually, I find the Psalms really inspiring. When I read the words like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing. I sit quietly after that statement and I just am so inspired with a God who is so faithful. Collectively, the Psalms bear testimony to God's faithfulness, especially through the history and the journeying of his people, through their ups and downs, through their trials and tribulations. We can relate to that, of course. And as you look through the Psalms collectively, you will find psalms and songs of, of joy and praise and lament. You'll find songs of despair. You'll find the heart cry of his people. And you'll find songs of their history. The, the Jewish people love to sing of their history and no less so in the Psalms. And Psalm 126 has a specific title as well as being a song of ascents. It's also called, more commonly, a Song of Zion, because it's the story of God's people going back to Jerusalem. And in a little while, we're going to unpack that and think a little bit about that. But of course, also, it is known as a group of psalms called the Psalm of Ascents from Psalm 140, uh, sorry, Psalm 120 to 134. We have this group of psalms called the Psalm of Ascents, and I'm sure you've, you've been introduced to that. And again, as well as being called the Psalms of Ascents, they were, they were more commonly known as the Songs of the Steps. And so leading up to the Temple of Jerusalem in its day, there were this group of 15 steps. And during the procession, and the procession in particular would have been the Feast of the Tabernacles, the people of Israel would stop at each step and sing one of these songs, and then they would continue. So Psalm 126 would have been roughly nearly halfway up this group of 15 steps. As you look more closely at Psalm 126, you'll find that, yes, it is a song of Zion. 
It is also a song about their history. But over and above that, what I find in this psalm is that it is a psalm, a song of hope. And it's conveying this wonderful message that God is faithful in watching over his people in the day, but also to us here today. I find that so reassuring that although we can read and sing about the history of Israel, we can draw the truths from this and be inspired in our lives today. So having said that, when you're going through a time of deep sorrow, and we do face these times, Psalm 126 really is strong medicine for your soul. So when you're trying to work out where this psalm would fit into your life, when you're going through that particular time, draw energy, draw inspiration from this psalm in particular. It doesn't tell you that there will be no tears, no troubles, no sorrows, but it does tell you that these things will not last. It tells you that the Lord will turn your sorrow into joy and your tears into laughter. It doesn't tell you to not give up on the Lord during that waiting time when you just kept waiting. There are no answers, but you just have to hang in there, knowing that this God of faithfulness is a God of faithfulness to you as well. And while you're waiting, this psalm also tells you to marvel at what God has done in the past and to trust him for the future. So the psalm begins, when the Lord brought back those who returned to Zion, we were like those who dream. So the psalmist is talking about himself as being part of this. We were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with singing. I don't know when the last time was for you, when you were just so filled with joy, you couldn't contain yourselves and it just broke out into laughter. I have been to a particular church service where I've witnessed something like this, not quite the same. And, and it was a little bit unnerving because it's not part of our culture. It's, it's not something we're used to. But to get to the point of being so filled with joy that you just break out into laughter, this is extreme joy. So just to paint the background, wh where is this coming from? Well, the background to this particular psalm is the Babylonian captivity. And long story cut short, under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar in the day, the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem and they took the youngest, the brightest, and the best of the Jewish population back to Babylon. The elderly and the infirmed were left. They posed no threat to the kingdom of Babylon, so they, they left. The Babylonian captivity lasted for 70 years. And this is interesting. All those who were taken into captivity, they never lived to see their freedom. They never lived to see the joy that was in this psalm. They died in their captivity. Yet the longing to be set free, the longing to see God step in and intervene, was passed on from generation to generation. So this captivity ended in 537 BC, and it was under the reign at that time of Cyrus the Great. And he, at that time, again, long story cut short, let the people go back to Judea. So you can imagine the celebration amongst these people when he did, when that decision was made. 
And the psalmist writes, it was, it was like a dream. I'm sure you've heard of the expression, some things are too good to be true. That's how they felt. It's just a dream. It's, it's not real. But when the shock wore off and reality set in, the, the people rejoiced. Our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with singing. You can see this procession leaving Babylon, going back to Jerusalem. They were singing every step of the way. Now, it's interesting to note this, that elation is in proportion to despair. I wonder if you remember the story uh, uh, a few years ago of the trapped miners in, in Chile. Uh, it was a huge story on the main news. The chances of rescue looked slim. Tension mounted by the minute as the world just watched and waited. Families were desperate at that time for good news. Then came the news that we'd all hoped for and that we were as churches all praying for. They'd been reached and they were on their way out. Jubilation filled the air. Broad smiles and laughter on the news told the story. What seemed to be a hopeless situation proved to be nothing short of a miracle. And one of those who was interviewed, one of those who was rescued, he could say nothing but thank God, thank God, thank God. And it materialized that this guy had a deep rooted faith in God. Now, translate that story into the Babylonian captivity and you can appreciate what the psalmist is saying. After hoping and praying for years to be released. Now, when we talk about years, we're talking about 70 long years they've been praying and hoping and then the people of Israel finally got to go home unbelievable it's that pinch me I must be dreaming moment what if we can tap into that I think we can as I thought about this the more I thought about my own depravity the power the penalty of sin that I was under that we were under and the more we think about that and the despair attached to that, the more we can appreciate the redemption brought for us by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I remember the words that Paul wrote, in him we have forgiveness, in him we have been redeemed, we have been set free. But remember that day before all this happened, day of despair, day of sin, day of, of living selfish lives away from God, and then it ended. We found Christ. We were rescued. We were set free. There is, of all people, one man who really got this right when he penned the words, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. That man was Charles Wesley, and he wrote this. Let me quote his words. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. You know, I, I love modern hymns. I will sing them to my heart's delight. But sometimes the words of these lovely traditional songs really sum it all up and they certainly do for me these words of of Charles Wesley if if we could take those words and rewrite 
that hymn today, how many tongues would you need to praise God for your salvation from sin and death? Just one tongue or, or maybe 10 would a would hundred tongues do? Well, for Wesley, he was so thankful that only a thousand tongues would do for him. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. You know, and thinking about that, it humbles me. And it reminds me that I am so indebted to God, so dependent on his grace. And I've often, over my years of being saved, asked the question, why me? What is it about me? Well, again, I want to quote just one line from another old hymn. It's going to be a bit like that tonight, I apologise. But a great songwriter, Isaac Watts, he wrote, Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Now, I have to make a confession. When I was a lot younger, and I remember singing this song, and when we came to that line, I used to giggle because I couldn't understand it. I thought, what, why are we singing about worms? What has this got to do with, with worshipping God? And I, I just didn't get it. And it took me years to appreciate that I was just nothing. There was nothing of me to love. I was so empty. I had nothing to offer. But Jesus Christ reached down. Heaven touched earth. He went to the cross for me. We are so indebted to God. So true. Can it be true? The psalmist writes. The psalmist goes on. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Yes, the Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. There are two things that really stand out in this verse. When Cyrus the Great ended their exile, the people of Israel, strangely enough, they didn't praise Cyrus. They praised God. The Lord has done great things for us. The praise was directed to him, not Cyrus, who actually gave the order for them to be set free. And just thinking about that one line, the Lord has done great things for us. Can I, can I share a little story? It's, it's, a, it's a little bit funny, but you know me. Hopefully you'll forgive me for this, but I, I like it. Um, the story is told of a couple of naughty children. I can relate to that straight away. And they wanted to play a trick on an old widow. Every day they'd sit at her kitchen table and they, sorry, she would sit at her kitchen table and she would pray every day for the Lord to provide for her needs. One day, these two naughty boys, they, they crept to that window, they stayed un, low, undiscovered, below that open window. They heard her pray these words, give me this day my daily bread. Great prayer to pray. So they pooled their money, they went to a shop, and they bought her some food. Then when she went to the other part of the house, they jumped through the open window, put the food on the table, and waited outside for her to find it. When she came back to the kitchen, she saw the food. And what did she say? She exclaimed, oh, thank you, Jesus. At that, these two naughty boys jumped up and said, oh, you silly old woman. It wasn't Jesus who gave you that food. It was us. We did it. And she looked at them and said, oh, yes, Jesus brought me that food. The Lord gave me this food. He just used the devil to deliver them. Uh, Sorry about that, but I just love the thought behind it. Yes, they had done the deeds, but
but her prayers have been answered by God. Cyrus may have issued the decree, but as far as the people of Israel were concerned, it was God who gave the word. He said, yes, now's the time you can go back. And just for us, really, the next time something good happens to you and you receive an unexpected blessing, instead of saying, hey, today's my lucky day, just whisper this little prayer. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for knowing what I needed for today. Thank you just for meeting that need. And um, this morning when I was with you, I relayed that story from being able to meet the needs of that that rough sleeper when we found that bag of foods, that's one story that's going to go into a book because it's so encouraging to know that there is a God of faithfulness and he is the one who gives us what we need. He's the one who blesses us. The people of Israel attributed their good fortune to God. And what's remarkable is the other nations did too. Now that's the second thing that stands out about this verse. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. It's almost as if the nations were looking in and they took notice of what God was doing amongst them and said, yes, God is doing something among his people. Now, make no mistake, when God acts, people do take notice, even people who have no faith, people who have no connection with God. When God acts, people stand back and watch when Bill Gates donated a billion dollars to fight AIDS in Africa, the whole world sat up and took notice. But the African churches prayed and said, thank you, Jesus, you did this. That's interesting. When someone is miraculously healed against all odds, leaving doctors baffled, the only answer is, it's a work of God. God was behind that. When someone turns their life around and confesses Jesus Christ is Lord, everyone around them feels the effect and they exclaim that it's a work of God. When we brought that bag of food to that rough sleeper on the streets of Plymouth, early hours of a Sunday morning, we said to him, it's not us, this is God meeting your needs and, and we believe it. And the more we see it, the more we practice it, the more we trust the faithfulness of God, the more we'll burst out in laughter and joy and rejoice in his presence. And just to encourage you um, at Great Parks, I have no doubt that your influence as a church is going to be so infectious, it will affect the lives of others. Every Sunday, people will drive by your church, they will walk by it, they will see your cars parked outside they will read the signs on the walls they will know what you're doing as a church inside the building they sense your enthusiasm as a church they know the lord is working among you and although they might not say it at the moment although you might not realize it it's happening go back to this psalm then they said among the nations the lord's has done great things for them. The psalm then ends with a prayer. Restore our fortunes again, Lord, like the streams of the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap in joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seeds for sowing, will certainly come again with joy, carrying 
is Sheaves. The Negev is quoted. The Negev is the desert at the southernmost part of Israel. The word Negev actually means arid or, or dry or parched. It's a desolate place. To put it another way, if you go into a travel agent's and you see all the posters around of, of beautiful, exotic places to visit, you won't find a poster of the Negev. It really is, to the naked eye, a God-forsaken place. There's, there's nothing there. Yet, in the middle of that desert, there are natural springs, and they have been the source of water there for thousands of years. They've always been there. And also, at certain times of the year, in particular during the spring or the winter, the rains could suddenly fall, sending torrents of water rushing through parts of that desert. Grass and flowers suddenly spring to life almost overnight, life restored. And that's a picture of the Negev, which is, which is particularly interesting to the psalmist. And Isaiah wrote about this as well. He wrote prophetically about what's taking place during the days of this psalm. He wrote this. Then the lame will leap like a deer. The mute tongue will shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. All pointing to this time of Israel's history. It really gives teeth to the psalmist's words. Restore our fortunes Again, Lord, like the streams of the Negev, you do it in the desert. We've seen you do it amongst other people. Will you do it amongst us? And he will. The sentiments of this psalm collectively, and in particular the end part of this psalm, this prayer, uh, have been taken up in another, another lovely old, old hymn. I hope you're impressed that this is the third old hymn I've, I've quoted for you this evening. But the words are sublime. Oh, God. Restore our nation, come irrigate dry souls, that those who sow in sadness may reap their sheaves with gladness and sing the song of joy. I love that word. The image that the psalmist leaves us with is that of God's great mercy. God has set the captives free. They're on their way home. They could scarcely believe it, but it's happening. He is leading them back to the promised land. By his grace, he will restore to them their good fortune. This land will once again flow with milk and honey for them. Their tears of sadness will be re replaced with, with joy and gladness and, and laughter and rejoicing. The people of Israel in this psalm have been set free. I remember seeing a poster uh, many years ago and I've got it as a bookmark in my Bible and the poster is a picture of a prison cell. In the cell was an inmate sitting with his head in his hands on a bunk as if lamenting his crime. What he could have seen if he looked up, is that the door of the cell was open. He had been released. He was free to go. At that moment, he hadn't seen it. The caption read, and it's verses taken from Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, it simply says this, Christ has made us free. Isn't that lovely? For us, Christ broke the power 
of sin and death. He, he has set us free. And the Bible says, if he has set you free, you will be completely free. And if you like, he has unlocked that prison door and invited us to walk into freedom. Psalm 126 offers us hope in the midst of trouble and tears. I, I love that sentiment. It tells us that there will be trouble and pain, but they won't last. It tells us that there is a God who is completely in control and has this wonderful plan for us as families, as individuals, as a church, as his ultimate church. It tells us that God will turn our sorrow into joy and our tears into laughter. The Bible assures us, doesn't it, that weeping, it may endure for a night, just for a time, but joy does come in the morning. And the lovely thought to finish with is this, one day, all of our sorrows we'll be able to leave behind in this world and we have the eternal joys of heaven that are waiting for us and over and above that not only the joys of heaven but the saviour who set us free and I think we should live as people with our focus and our eyes set on heavenly things that's where our treasure should be that's where our heart should be and God will bless us for it simple thoughts which I hope will bless you this evening and again thank you so much for inviting me to share with you tonight. Uh, thanks Kevin. <laughs>